The sermon text today is Revelation 14, 6 through 13. The Old Testament reading will come from Psalm 75. Let's begin with Psalm 75. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity, God says. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Say law, which means stop and think and ponder these things. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty, with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So far the reading of God's word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it and also our application of it as well. Brothers and sisters, I I hope that that you see that the Christian life should be lived very seriously. The Christian life should be lived very seriously. A a serious person is one who is solemn and thoughtful in character and in manner. A serious thought is one that is careful and profound. A serious discussion is one that demands careful consideration and application. And what I am saying to you is that Christ followers should be serious people. The thoughts, words, and actions of the Christian should be 
carefully considered, deep and, and profound. Our worship should be serious, and so too uh, should our way of life. And I really do not want to be misunderstood. By no means am I suggesting that a Christian should, should never have fun. Uh, by no means am I saying that a Christian should never uh, be playful or, or joyous in, in life. Indeed, the Christian should know how to have a good time. Uh, the deep joy that we have in our hearts will undoubtedly manifest itself from time to time in laughter and in singing. Uh, the opposite of serious is not fun or playful. The opposite of serious is superficial. It is not a fun or, or playful disposition that I'm calling you to avoid, but I'm calling you to avoid superficiality in, in, your, in your life, that the Christian life should be lived seriously. I I do wish sometimes that you could see me in my fun and playful modes. You usually see me just in a, a serious mode. Whenever I try to be fun and playful with you here, it doesn't seem to go over too well. Um, I just get glared at by my sister for some reason when I make a joke. I, I don't know what's up with that. But, um, I, I, but I am fun and playful. My daughters have a habit now of, of trying to videotape me when I'm in one of those modes. So I have to be very careful. They have their phones on them. They're so quick with them. They could open them up and, and they try to catch me. And I think it's for blackmail purposes, but I'm stronger than they are because I could just say, oh yeah, no phone for three months. No problem. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm not trying to discourage being fun or playful, but, but I think we do need to cultivate a seriousness within us if we do not have it if we do have it i think we should even grow in it more a christian should know how to laugh and play we should know how to celebrate life another way to say it maybe is that a christian should know how to party uh, but not by way of drunkenness which leads to debauchery but soberly sincerely and from the heart it is really the godless man who must drink to the point of drunkenness in order to celebrate and and why is this it is because his sin-sick soul will not allow him to celebrate naturally. His mind and heart must first be sedated and inebriated if he is to sing. But the Christian should know how to sing from from the heart uh, because of the joy that resides deep within us. We should know how to celebrate life sincerely. It, It almost seems contradictory, and it's rather hard to put in words, but I think you can see how a very serious person if they are serious with the word of God and the spirit of God in their heart, will also be very joyous. And that's what I'm calling you to, to be joyous, not superficially so, but substantially and seriously. So I'm, I'm calling you to, to cultivate seriousness in your life and in your faith if you do not already have it. Now, th- there are a number of things that God uses to develop seriousness in his people. Um, I think some might be more predisposed to it than others you know some are just kind of born uh, with a a serious personality being uh, naturally more contemplative maybe uh, from birth but God also uses uh, life experiences to deepen the seriousness of our faith have you noticed that how life experiences can be used uh, by God by the spirit of God to to deepen our maturity in in Christ We, we grow more thoughtful more careful more solemn more mature as we experience the seriousness of the world in which we live. Children tend to be very carefree, don't they? 
They're allowed to play. They are typically sheltered from, from many of the difficulties of life that we experience as adults. And, and it's the way it should be for a time. Our children should be sheltered from the seriousness of life. And being protected in this way, they're able to develop in body and in soul so that they might eventually be able to bear up under the pressures of life when they do come. Uh, but our children uh, progressively and over time will have to experience for themselves the difficulties associated with living in, in this world, won't they? Uh, They will have to experience the seriousness of life. And we as Christians should not tremble at the thought of this, but we should rejoice in it, uh, knowing that these difficulties are used by God to deepen the seriousness and sincerity of our faith. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in, in nothing. And here is what James means by this. The way to maturity is by way of suffering. So we are to rejoice in the suffering, not because we enjoy the suffering itself, but because of what it produces in us as children as children of God. It is through the trials and tribulations of this life that our steadfastness and maturity is developed. We grow more serious as we face difficulties in this world. And it is in this that James is calling us to rejoice. Be thankful to God for, for the difficulties that you face because you know that it is going to produce something in you. It's going to produce a maturity in you that you did not have before. It's going to cultivate a seriousness in you that you did not have before. I, I was feeling very contemplative this last week about all of the difficulties that we have experienced as a congregation over the last year or so. It, it's been a difficult 12 to 18 months for, for us as a congregation. I, I was feeling very contemplative. And, and to be quite honest with you, I was feeling very melancholy uh, earlier this week. Uh, this Today is the anniversary of uh, uh, my cousin Leslie's passing. Um, some are, are gone today uh, because of that away at an event. Um, and so that was on my mind. Also, this terrible event that took place in Las Vegas a week ago um, was heavy on my heart. I think it's been heavy upon all of our hearts and upon the heart of the nation. Uh, and so I was feeling very contemplative about all of these things. And I was thinking of all the difficulties that we've experienced over the last 12 to 18 months. And, and I just want to acknowledge that today, in this past year or so, we, we have had to deal with, with serious sin, serious sickness, and death. And the sorrows that accompany these things with much more intensity than in the first five years of our existence. Uh, And and please understand, I'm speaking of our life together as a congregation. Indeed, there were real sorrows present in our first five years. Uh, But this past year or so did at times feel like waves of sorrow were washing over us. Would you identify with that feeling, church? Even if you weren't directly impacted by these things, we, we have felt it as a congregation. Uh, what are we to do about this? What are we to do about this? First of all, I, I think we ought to acknowledge the suffering for, for what it is. It is suffering. This world is filled with difficulties. Those who maintain the appearance of happiness in this world by pretending that the world is other than what it is, they are not serious and substantial Christ followers, but, but I think they are foolish uh, to live according to this lie. And there are many who do live this way. They, they deceive themselves. They avoid 
suffering at all costs. They just kind of pr- pretend that it is not there. And I don't think that's the right approach for us to take as Christ followers. We do need to square with the fact that this world is filled with difficulties. There are sufferings in this world. We need to face the fact of it. And then having faced the fact of suffering, we must learn to live with one another well in the midst of it, you see. Let's see it for what it is. We do go through trials of many kinds. We do suffer in this world. And having faced that fact, let's learn to live with one another well in the midst of the suffering. I want you to listen to um, pieces from Romans 12, 9 through 16. We must love one another with brotherly affection. We must outdo one another in showing honor. We must rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. We must be constant in prayer. We must contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. We are to live in harmony with one another. Never should we be haughty, but we should associate with the lowly. Never should we be wise in our own sight. In the body of Christ, when one member suffers, what Paul is saying is that all do suffer and we must learn to enter into that suffering with them as, as a church, as a community of faith, as the body of Christ. It, it's only right that we do this. We must learn to live with one another well in the midst of suffering. The, the human body functions this way, doesn't it? When you smash your finger with a hammer, it is not just the finger that hurts. Have you noticed that? But you hurt, right? You hurt. You feel the pain to the very core of you. That pain radiates through the body. And the rest of the body then goes to work on trying to alleviate the pain that has been inflicted upon that one part of the body. And that is how it is to work in Christ's church. That when one member suffers, we all, it is right for us to feel it. And then to do all that is possible to alleviate that suffering. And to deal with that suffering member in a compassionate manner. It is only right that we live in this way with one another, brothers and sisters. And thirdly, we should learn to rejoice in the trials. We should learn to rejoice in the trials, just as God has commanded. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we are to count or or consider it all joy, not because we enjoy the suffering itself, but because of what we know it will produce within us. It will produce, if God is merciful to us, maturity and seriousness. Um, I'm not sure about you, but these sufferings that we have experienced over the past year or so have produced a much greater seriousness in me as a pastor and as a, as a Christian man. Uh, Truth be told, I've always been rather serious. Um, I think I am kind of predisposed to that. My wife, she calls me briefcase boy. Um, I don't know where she gets it. I've never owned a briefcase in my life, but she says I've had one ever since high school. Uh, This is her playful way of poking fun at me for being too serious or intense at times. So I've always been on the serious side. I I can be playful and fun too, as I've said. But I do feel like the trials and tribulations that have washed over our congregation over the past year or so have made me much more serious in terms of my approach to life. The phrase that comes to mind is that the Christian life is no joke. Never did I think it was a joke, but it feels as if I know it more deeply now than ever before. The Christian life is no joke. The trials of this life are no joke. 
Uh, Sin is no joke. It's terribly dangerous. It's devastating. Sickness and death are no joke. They They are real. They do bring real sorrow to the people of God. Life is very serious. And I think just... You know, growing older and, and having more experience in ministry, personally speaking, I, I've been able to really see that. I've always known it, but having experienced it, I, I think it has cultivated within me, within me a greater seriousness concerning life in this world. We can't play around. That's what I'm kind of getting at with you, brothers and sisters. We can't play around as Christians, but we need to cultivate seriousness and maturity in our lives so that the seriousness of our faith matches the seriousness of the world in which we live and all that threatens us uh, therein. I I do fear for those who, though they might profess faith in Christ, they live with what seems to be such superficial doctrine and superficial faith. At some point, they will have to face the seriousness of sin, sickness, and death. And I do wonder if those who are superficial, if they will be able to stand when they are faced with those trials of many kinds. If they do truly belong to Christ, God will make them stand. I do know this. But they seem to me to be in such a precarious position as they live superficially. These are the ones who Christ compared in the parable of the sower to those seeds which fell on rocky ground. Do you remember that parable? Where Christ describes seed being scattered and it falls upon different kinds of soil. And one of the soils that he describes is the soil of rocky ground. These seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. What is Christ warning against except a superficial faith? And there are some who have this. They, they, they say they have faith. They, they have the appearance of of religiosity on the surface, right? And, and sometimes they're very zealous. They spring up quickly and they're so passionate about Jesus and about following Christ and all of this. But, but see, if they have no root, if they're not serious, if they're not sincere in their faith, when the trials of life come, uh, they will wither away, only proving that their faith was not sincere in the beginning. And so how important it is for us to culti- cultivate depth and seriousness in our faith before the scorching sun does appear. And so I do not pretend to enjoy the trials and tribulations of this life. I I do not actively pray for them to come. I don't think you do either. We don't sit here in our prayer time and say, Lord, please bring difficulty upon me. Uh, But I am learning, and I hope that you are learning as well, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. The, The older I get, the more I do see with greater clarity how it is that God uses the trials to produce steadfastness and maturity within his people. He uses experiences, trials and tribulations to mature our faith and to make us more serious in it. But he also uses his word, doesn't he? If we would only give careful consideration to the word of God, we might be able to cultivate maturity and seriousness without having to go through such intense trials. Some people only learn the hard way. You've heard that expression before, right? Uh, how much better it is to learn not the hard way, but to learn by just simply listening to what God has to say about the world in which we live and his plans and purposes for it. If we would only give greater attention to the word of God, we could cultivate this maturity without having to pass through perhaps such difficulties, you know. The word of God is serious. It speaks of serious things and it's to be taken seriously. And, And so how important it is that we give attention to the word and to the serious things contained within How important it is that we prepare our hearts to receive it and having received it that we believe it and seek to live according to it. 
Um, Christians are to give careful attention to the serious things that God's word contains. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is that man who loves God's word, who loves God's law and meditates on it continuously and has it implanted deep within his heart and lives according to it. Blessed is is that man. Some passages of scripture are more serious than others, aren't they? The whole of God's word is serious and is to be taken. So, um, But some are more serious than others. And I think the one that is before us this morning is as serious as they come. Did you notice that? There's a very serious thing being dealt with here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 11. We encounter three warnings. And these warnings are about the eminence and the certainty of the final judgment. It's a very serious subject that demands serious consideration. Three angels deliver these three warnings, don't they? And they deliver the warnings to all who dwell upon the earth. And included with the warnings is a call for the ungodly to repent... And for the saints on earth to endure. Let's take this passage one section at a time. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. Uh, We must remember where we are. We are in the book of Revelation which communicates truth via symbol. This passage does not mean that there will come a day when the gospel will literally be proclaimed by an angel who flies overhead. I think that is what many assume, that someday, near the end of time, there will be an angel that is just kind of flying patterns over the earth and is, is, is um, shouting out the gospel to all who live upon it. Uh, remember that we are in the book of Revelation, which communicates truth via symbol. This is not saying that an angel is going to deliver the gospel, but rather that the gospel will always be preached even to the very end of time. And how will it be preached? Well, it will be preached by us as his people, as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel and to call men and women uh, to repentance. Jesus himself said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The thing that was said most directly by Jesus here in Matthew 24, 14, is being symbolized in Matthew Chapter four, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Uh, the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world on to the very end of time. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So it does seem that in view here is the gospel proclamation that will take place even up to the very end of time. Uh, What we have here is a call to repentance, a call to repentance. The good news of Jesus Christ is not explicitly stated here in this passage, but it was implied in verse 6 in the words, eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel, brothers and sisters? It is the good news that God has been merciful to sinners and has provided a savior for them so that their sins would be forgiven should they trust in him or believe in him. The gospel is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have 
eternal life. That is the gospel. And that is not the thing that is stated here explicitly, but it is implied in the words eternal gospel in verse 6. Instead, what we have in verse 7 is a declaration of the bad news without which no one can truly understand the good news. You do understand that if you are to know the gospel, you must also, first of all, know what is the bad news. Gospel means good news. You need to know the bad as well. And that is the thing that the angel um, here in Revelation 14, 7 pronounces. The hour of God's judgment has come, he says. Um, Clearly, our minds are to go to the time of the end immediately before God's final judgment. The hour of God's judgment has come. Repent, therefore, turn from your sins and to God. Coming to him through faith in Jesus Christ alone is the thing that men and women are being urged to do. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Can you hear it then? Here the people of the earth are being urged to repent, to turn from their sins and to give glory to God who made the heavens and the earth. The the trouble with the non-Christian, the non-believer, is that they live as if this world is all that there is. In the narrative of the book of Revelation, they are the ones who serve the beast that rises from where? The sea. And then the false prophet who rises from where? The earth. Uh, They love the world. They live as if this world, this realm is all that there is. These earth dwellers, as they are often called in the book of Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth, worship the creation. They worship the world and the things of this world, but they fail to worship the creator. And here in verse 7, they are called to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There is this reminder that, that, that there is a God who spoke all of this into existence, and therefore you are not to worship this, and you are not to live as if this world is all that there is, but you are to worship God alone who created all things. Verse 8, another angel A second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. I think this is very interesting because this is the first time Babylon has been mentioned in the book of Revelation, and yet it is announced that she is already fallen. So the moment we hear of Babylon, we are already told that she is fallen. Now, Babylon will take a prominent place in the book of Revelation in chapters 16 through 18. And so what we have here is a kind of foreshadowing. Uh, we, are, we have been told that Babylon has fallen, but we will learn more about Babylon later in the book and more will be said to us about her fall. Now, if you know anything at all about uh, the Old Testament and what it has to say about Babylon, you, you would know that Babylon is the place that Judah was taken to in captivity when she was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. She was taken into captivity there, into Babylon, for 70 years. Uh, The city of Babylon, therefore, symbolizes pagan powers that oppress God's people and tempt them to turn from the worship of the one true God to idols. That is what this city uh, represents. Uh, This city symbolizes worldliness and the seductiveness of the world. Later on in the book of Revelation, we'll remember or we'll learn that uh, to the original recipients of the book, Babylon was, was code or was symbolic for Rome. Uh, that was the empire under which these 
Christians who originally received the book of Revelation lived. They lived in Rome. And Babylon, we will be explicitly told, is symbolic uh, for Rome. Uh, But Babylon is not exhausted by ancient Rome. There are still Babylons in the world today, aren't there? Um, And there will be Babylons in the world when Christ returns. Here we have a symbol of the worldliness and the seductiveness that we find uh, within the world. Have you guys ever spent much time in large cities? I don't know if you have. I mean, we live in Hemet, and it's fairly rural out here. You know, it's growing, but still fairly rural. I I don't know if you've ever spent much time in large cities, somewhere like uh, L.A. or or, or Chicago or, or New York. People are people wherever they live. But there is something about those those cities that, that is particularly um, seductive and, and, and sinful. Do you, do you know it's just kind of concentrated there? I mean, you have on display such wealth and, and sometimes such sin and perversion. And you see it there in, in concentrated form. And, and so Babylon, this great, great ancient city, was that way. It was a worldly place. And the people of Israel were taken there for a time. And there they were t- attempted. They were tempted to betray their God. Indeed, we face uh, this same temptation even to the present day. Uh, The reason for Babylon's fall, to quote Dennis Johnson in his commentary, is her seduction of the nations, intoxicating them with her mixed brew of rage and sexual license. And so here we have a pronouncement in verse 8 that she is fallen. She is fallen. And another angel, a third, verse 9 followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here, I want you to recognize how the warnings pronounced by these angels, these three angels, do give an answer to what was said to us in chapters 12 and 13 about the dragon and the two beasts. Uh, Remember that the dragon and the two beasts seek to devour the people of God. The Christian, therefore, will be tempted to abandon the true worship of God when pressured by them. Here, the pronouncement of the angels makes it clear that it will not be worth it. It would not be worth it to abandon the worship of the true God. So for here, what we're being shown here in chapter 14 is is the end of the matter. What is the end of these things? What is the end of Babylon? So here you are, a Christian, being tempted to abandon Christ and to go after the seductiveness of the world. But what is her end? The end of Babylon is is destruction. And what is the end of those who do go after the beast and take the mark of the beast upon themselves and do succumb to the political pressures or to the persecution that that beast brings upon them? What is the end that they will uh, endure? Their end also is destruction. All who worship the beast and its image and receive the mark of the beast All who drink the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And notice that their punishment will be eternal, the text says. 
they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So, so here we have it again. The, the world looks a particular way to us, doesn't it? The, the, these, these powers seem so great as if they cannot be resisted. It would be better just to bow down to them. And, and, and to worship them and to abandon the true worship of God. And, and the world seems so tempting. These, these temptations come upon us in such strong ways. Should we not just go after the world? The book of Revelation is saying don't do it because here is the truth concerning the end. These things will come to nothing. Those who go after the world and neglect the worship of God will indeed suffer eternal judgment. For the one not in Christ... Um, this eternal gospel and the warnings pronounced within this text should bring about faith and repentance. For the non-Christian, for the one in Christ, th- these warnings should bring about faith and, and repentance. Do you see, the text is pleading with you to see it, do you see that there will be a judgment day? There will be a judgment day. All who are not found in Christ will be judged for their sins, and none will stand, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three. All are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 9 through 12. And certainly we see that man judges himself differently than God judges him. Man thinks of himself as being basically good and deserving God's commendation. But God's perspective is that all are indeed under sin. All are under sin and are deserving of God's judgment. That is our condition apart from Christ. That is the condition that we are born with as we come into uh, this world. You know, it was really interesting to listen uh, to, to people on the radio this past week talk about this killer who did so much harm a week ago in Las Vegas. It it was interesting uh, to hear even non-Christians comfort themselves with the thought that God will judge the wicked. Did you hear any of that sort of talk, you know, in in the papers or as you're listening to the radio? There there was talk like this, you know, this man, he did so much harm, and then he took his own life, and justice could not be served, therefore, in this world, right? But justice will be served. In the life to come. I, I heard non-Christians talking this way. They were comforting themselves with the thought of the final judgment. I thought, I thought this is interesting. I think it is right, in fact, that we do take some comfort in, in the fact that all things will be set right in the end, that God will judge the wicked. Uh, that is a comforting thought. We should pray for the salvation of the wicked, of course. We do not rejoice at the thought of anyone uh, being condemned eternally. But But there is some comfort in the thought that God will do what is right in the end, and there, there will be justice uh, that is uh, served. There's something comforting about this thought, especially in situations like the one uh, that, that we are here talking about. The act was so horrendous. In the end, the man took his own life, which made it impossible for any justice to be served in this life. And, and so it is right that we do comfort ourselves with the thought that God will make it right. He will see to it that justice is served. But in the same breath, these people also comforted themselves with the thought that they will not face God's wrath when they stand before him. Did you hear that theme too come through loud and clear? 
They really did think this man will suffer God's wrath, but I will not. You see, I will not. And if you were to ask them why, what would their answer be? Why will you not suffer God's judgment? Their answer would certainly be this, because I am good. I am not like that. And here is a word I heard uttered very often in the past week. I am not like that monster. Did you hear that word? I am not like that monster who killed 58 and injured over 500. And so I want you to see how we, when we speak of someone who has done something particularly evil, how we are prone to speak of the person as if they were not human, as if they were some animal. We say they were a monster. But, but no, uh, the, the really disturbing fact that we need to square with is that this person was a human being. He was one of us from among our species. And while I am glad by, that by the grace of God, not all are as evil as that man, and that not all do such evil things, God's opinion of us is not nearly as high as our opinion of ourselves. We think of ourselves as good, especially when we compare ourselves to others. But God says, no, you are sinners who walk in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. If you are not in Christ, this is what you are. You are a sinful person. You are a child of wrath. It is true you may not be as bad as him. You might not be as bad as the person, your your, your neighbor, or whatever person you want to judge yourself next to. That might be true. But the truth of the matter is that you are still a, a sinner, and you will one day have to stand before the most holy and the most righteous God. If we are not in Christ, having been justified by him, having been regenerated and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will not stand. Our catechism actually gets it just right. Um, after considering the Ten Commandments, our catechism asks in question 87, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? I dream of the day when everyone will be able to recite this in unison, right? Because you've all given attention to this and you've all memorized it. I, maybe it will happen at some point, you know? Is any man able to keep the commandments of God? The Ten Commandments have been considered. Does anybody live up to these standards? What does our catechism say? No. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought and in word and in deed. What are you then, therefore? You are a lawbreaker. You are someone who has transgressed God's law. You have certainly transgressed them in thought, in word, and in deed. Question 88. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer, no. Some sins in themselves, in themselves and by reason of sev- several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. It is true. That for someone to, to, to mow down 58 innocent people, it, that, that is more heinous in God's sight than to tell a white lie. We, we all must acknowledge that. And I do think that in some respects the punishment will fit the crime in eternity. God is just. Question 89 though, but what does every sin deserve? What does every sin deserve? Answer, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So we have bad news delivered to us in in our catechism, questions 87 through 89. But then there is good news, question 90. 
What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? You see, I hope that is actually the cry of your heart right there. After you listen to this, you know, at some point we need to square up with the fact that God's law has been given to us and we break it in so many ways. And, and, and we should tremble at the thought of standing before God Almighty clothed in our sin. And we should cry out, what must we do to escape his wrath and curse then that is due to us for our sin? What do we have to do? And what is the answer given? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. What is required? True faith and true obedience, true repentance. Excuse me. True faith and true repentance is the thing that is required. And so, friends, do not be puffed up with pride. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, Romans 12, 3. Recognize your sin and see what it is that your sin deserves. Your sin, my sin, deserves God's judgment. Is this not a serious matter? I can't think of one more serious than this. It's one that should not be taken lightly. We are to turn from our sin and we are to believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is the thing that matters. Uh, Will you be found in Christ? Uh, Can't you see that this is the point of the text that we are considering today? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have been introduced to us. Many belong to them. They have taken his mark and his name written upon them. But we have also seen Christ. He stands where? He stands in victory upon the heavenly Mount Zion. And with him, the 144,000 who has had, had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Do you want to escape God's wrath? Do you want to avoid his judgment? Then your only hope is to be found in Christ. You must be found with him, believing upon him, having his name and his father's name written upon you. There's no other way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans three, twenty-three through 26. Uh, This judgment scene that we have considered today should be seriously considered by the non-Christian. Our prayer is that the Spirit of God would use it to bring them to faith and repentance. But it should also be considered, seriously considered, by the Christ follower. The end result being that we would walk very carefully in this world, being all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election, 2 Peter 1.10. And indeed, this is the stated purpose of this text. Look at verse 12. What is the reason for these announcements? Of course, it is to call the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the one who is in their sins. It's to call them to repentance and faith in Christ. But the stated purpose of the text, the central purpose is stated in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. And so this serious scene is given ultimately to make the Christ follower follow more seriously after Christ in all of his thoughts, his words, and his deeds. 
And so, brothers and sisters, I, I feel compelled to just conclude with these words to you as Christians. Um, stop playing around with your Christian walk if you are playing around in it. Stop playing around as if life is not serious isn't it? In, and as if the Christian life is not serious. Stop playing around. Stop with the superficial living. Stop neglecting the means of grace that God has ordained for you. Stop with the prayerlessness. Stop with that. But instead, go to the Lord with diligence and prayer, praying daily that you would be strengthened to follow after him in this world. Stop neglecting to gather together with the church in fellowship. Stop with your superficial approach to the word of God. Stop coming to the table carelessly and without thought. Stop playing around with sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. Do you see that their end is destruction? We need to learn to take things much more seriously as Christians. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that the Lord would mature us and deepen our faith. Let us pray that we would take him at his word so that we need not learn the hard way as his people. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, we do thank you that you care for your children. Uh, You have forgiven us of our sins, and we are grateful for that. We are thankful that we have been justified, declared not guilty if we have faith in Christ. We have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. What a gift. But Lord, you have also determined to sanctify us as your people, to make us more and more holy, to mature us and deepen us in the faith that we have. Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the ways that you accomplish it, both through the trials and tribulations of this life and also Uh, through the hearing of your word as the Spirit works. And we do pray, Lord, that you would use both. Lord, as a congregation, uh, do help us to say with sincerity, Lord, thank you for the trials and tribulations of this life. We thank you that they are used by you, our gracious and almighty Father, to refine us and to mature us. We thank you, Lord, for that. We do pray, Lord, that you would give us peace in this world. We do pray that you would sustain us, Lord. We do pray that you would never give us more than we can handle. You have promised not to. But we do thank you, Lord, for the trials and tribulations of this life as you use them to mature us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, though it speaks to such difficult things and serious things. Indeed, it is hard for us even to read about eternal judgment and to think of such a thing, Lord. But your word is truth. And so we thank you for telling us the truth so that we might order our lives now according to it. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would, that they would labor to make their calling and election sure, that they would labor in this life to cling so closely to Jesus that they would never stumble or fall. Lord, do bless them with that sober kind of walk. Do bless them with that kind of sincerity and seriousness, Lord. And I do pray for those who are here who do not yet know Christ, um, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would look to your law, that they would recognize their sin, and that they would run to Christ who has died for sins, and that they would confess him as Lord and receive him as Savior. Lord, we do love you and thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray that you would be glorified by us, and we say it all in Christ's name. Amen.